Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, Richard, for that prayer. Thank you for the worship team, for the, the beautiful music. I almost feel like we can hear some Charlie Brown coming on after those two songs on the piano. <laughs> uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can gather to worship you, to be together, Lord, to celebrate your birth. Lord, we thank you for your word that tells us all about these things. God, I pray that we turn to it now, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, and that you would inspire us by it. Amen. All of us have conversations sometimes that stick with us long beyond our past when they, they happen. Uh, positive or for positive or negative reasons, they stay with us. I had one of these conversations a long time ago. There's actually one question. It said, so what's your plan? What's your plan? So Nathan, what's your plan? That was the one question. And I'll always remember it. It happened on a Thursday night in October 1996. I was at uh, Tyndale Seminary. I was sitting just beside the coffee shop across the way from the bookstore with two other guys from my Greek class. And the guy asked me that question. My answer was kind of vague and unclear. I, you know, I talked, well, you know, I'm here. I'm taking this program. I came from, from York University. And I did this and that. And I kind of waffled through an answer. And the guy who asked it just kind of like scoffed. <laughs> he kind of looked at me in a rude way. Um, and I was a little bit taken aback by that. But then I said, well, what about you? What's your plan? And he says, well, I'm currently in the Bible college. I'm going to do my three years there. I'm going to move to the seminary, do my three years there. And then I'm going to get a job as a pastor working in somewhere in southern, southwestern Ontario. And then he said, and somewhere in between there, he was going to get married to his girlfriend as well. His question bugged me so much because it was on my mind, right? I began to think, what a loser I am. This guy's got such a plan. I'm such a hack. I really don't know. I feel called here, but I really don't know what that looks like. This guy's got his whole life mapped out ahead of him. He's so organized. And as I look back at it now, I think, yeah, that was when I just started dating Carol. And I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, it's about time I started taking myself a little bit more seriously, and maybe I should have a plan, something to offer her, a future to offer her. And so these questions were on, and got, that question got under my skin, and it, it stayed there, and I still remember it to this day. Actually, the guy who asked it, I wouldn't remember his name had it not been for the fact that he asked me that question. But as I, look, as I move on in my life, I realize that there are different personality types. There are those people who, have, you know, who are organizers, right? They have every detail of their life planned. On the other hand, there are those people who are kind of more on the fly by the seat of their pants. They let life come to them. They deal with things as they come. And then there's every, people everywhere in between those two extremes. As you can see, I'm probably more to the extreme of fly by the seat of your pants. But... <laughs> um, even though we don't understand each other all the time, those different personalities, God has a specific assignment for all of his people, no matter what kind of personality you have. And it will involve putting aside your plans at some point, or putting aside your lack of plans, maybe getting serious at some point. But all of us need to leave space for God in our lives and in our plans, so that he can use us and move in our lives and work through us. By the way, this is my friend who asked me that question. I know the guy who married his girlfriend, so I know that part of the story didn't turn out exactly how he had it planned. 
But God bless him. I know he's a minister somewhere in Ontario now. Um, but as I read the Christmas story, and as we've looked at it this past, in the last few weeks, you just see, what I'm always amazed by is the obedience of these people to God's interruptive plan. Last week, Richard spoke to us about Joseph. And he's an honorable man and the impact that it had on his reputation. And Sheldon mentioned on Christmas Eve about Mary and that she had to say yes to this thing. Right? They were obedient to God, asking him these things that completely turned their lives upside down. Not just them. I go with the shepherds, the magi, you know, Elizabeth and, uh, and uh, Zechariah. All of them, they had plans and dreams and expectations out of life. It's hard for us to really understand, coming from our culture, going back there, exactly what those things were. But all of them would have had dreams and plans. And all of them had personalities, too. Some of them would have been organized, you know, you know type A planners. And some of them would have been a lot more, hey, take it easy. Let's just get on with life. <laughs> um, but God worked in their personalities. Sometimes it's easy to look at them as spiritual icon, uh, icons, really. Like Mary wasn't as an icon. Uh, but spiritual giants in our lives. But they were ordinary people just like us. And they were obedient to the task that God put out for them. So I think as we reflect on the story at Christmas time and as we look forward to the new year, some of us like to make res res you know, resolutions. I think it's a good way for us, a good time for us to evaluate if we've truly allowed God to interrupt our pans for being obedient to the assignment that he's given us. So here it is. The truth is this. God is calling you to obedience. And the question is, are you ready to take up that assignment? To answer that question, I want to turn and look at Acts 1. Uh, it's, you know, it's, we're going to fast forward, skip forward through Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, and we're going to come to his ascension. And here we meet another set of unlikely heroes, the apostles. They were regular folks just like us. And in this passage, Christ is going to give them a mission. We're going to be looking at it. Um, so here's the hint. The mission that they were given is the same mission that we have. But as we look at Acts 1 through 11, I want you guys to open your Bibles and, and go along with me. I'll read piece by piece as we go through it. But I think as we do, there's some key truths in there, some things we might find encouraging as we seek to be obedient to the assignment that God has given us. So let's start with verses 1 to 3. Read along here, Acts 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So my first point is this, trust in what Jesus has done and trust that he has chosen you to be part of what he is doing now. That is a title that won't fit on the back of the CD. <laughs> Let me do it again. Trust in what Jesus has done and trust that he has chosen you to be a part of what he is doing now. So as you, as you read that, right away you can see this is a continuation. Luke is writing this to a man named Theophilus. And he says, remember the former book. So he's, he's making this a continuation of the previous story. The first book, the Gospel of Luke, is about the life and work of Christ. And this book, Acts, is about the life and work of his followers. Right? A lot of what the last chapter of, uh, of Luke is kind of a rep repeated here in this, in this chapter as well. 
But what Luke is doing here is he's reminding Theophilus of all that he said about Jesus and his gospel and his life and his teaching. And he says that during this 40-day period, Christ came back, raised from the dead. He comes back and he visits with his, his followers. He gives them convincing proof that he was alive. He appeared to them many times, right? He wanted to give them reason to trust him. And he wanted them to know that he had done everything that he said he would do. Then he gave instructions. He repeated his teachings and he clarified the truth. He clarified the gospel so that they could fully understand it. Now that their eyes were opened, they would be able to teach that to others. Luke uh, 24, 45 says, they could understand the scriptures and now they were ready to go out, right? It tells us that. They were ready for the mission. Their scriptures were the Old Testament. We have the scriptures of the New Testament. So we have all of that explanation that Christ gave them. We have that in printed word in, in the Bible. The key point here, though, is that Luke emphasizes that the apostles were chosen. Jesus came and appeared to them. He didn't appear to everybody. He appeared to his chosen apostles. And he wanted them to know that they belonged to him. So as he's about to leave the world, he confirms that they are his. That brings a sense of peace, purpose, and direction. And we are also chosen. In just the same way that God chose the characters in the Christmas story to be part of his plans, he chose the disciples and he has chosen us. In John 17, as Jesus is praying in the night he's arrested, he says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays ahead for new believers. That includes all of us. So as we strive to follow Christ, it is important that we understand ourselves as part of a much bigger story. We've been grafted in there to the relationship with God. Right? We're part of something much bigger. The mission is much greater than just us. It's much greater than Mary and Joseph. It's much greater than all the apostles. Right? It's centered in and around the person and the work of Christ. So we're going to accept our assignment and be successful in it. We must fully trust what Christ has done and also trust that he chose us to work in it. Just to be clear, this is not some simple, you know, paying lip service to these things. Oh, yeah, I believe. It means fully accepting them. It means internalizing these truths so they become a part of who you are, understanding that you are a chosen follower of the Messiah. This might seem obvious to many of us. We hear it all the time. But there are so many things that can pull us away from this that, can become, that we can make a bigger deal and make a bigger part of our identity. Our careers, the distractions of our lives, our hurts, our insecurities and our fears can take us away. Our successes can take us away. The friends that we keep can take us away. And we can go on. This is not a once and done decision. Right? We have to continually ask ourselves, is Christ supreme in our hearts? And we need to be vigilant if we're going to stay focused on this mission. So the first point is that we recognize we're part of what God is doing. And that can be exciting and daunting at the same time. We have to recognize that we can't do this alone. But God empowers us by his spirit. Let's read verses 4 and 5. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak, have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I just want to briefly touch on waiting. That could be a whole sermon in its own. <laughs> but God often asks us to wait, and he asks them to wait. Waiting involves faith, and it can be scary. Mary and Joseph had to wait to see that these things would come true. And to go in the apostles had to wait, one step at a time. J.I. Packer, who passed away this past year, in his book Knowing God, said this, He is not in such a hurry as we are. And it is not his way to give more light on the future than we need for action in the present, or to guide us more than one step at a time. God's asking us to come and to be obedient one step at a time. Francis Chan in his book Crazy Love says, Most of us use, I'm waiting for God, I'm waiting for God to reveal his calling on my life as a means of avoiding action. That is not what the disciples do. As we look at them in, the, in the, this uh, in Luke 24 and in Luke 1 here, we see a different picture. They pressed into Christ while they waited. They prayed. Acts 1.4 tells us they joined together in one accord, constantly in prayer. They praised him in the temple continually, it says in Luke 24. And in the later verses of Luke 1, it tells us they got down to the business of choosing a new leader. So waiting for them, waiting on the promise didn't involve just sitting on their hands. It actually meant they continued to seek God and to press into him. The takeaway here is that God is faithful to his promises. He gives us what we need when we need it. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he gives us what he says he's going to give us. Well, what was he going to give them? (laughs) He says he's going to promise the Holy Spirit. What do we know about the Holy Spirit? It's part of the Trinity, (laughs) A great starting point, if you want to know, is, from, is in John 14, 15, and 16. It's part of the Olivet, Olivet Discourse. And um, it tells us quite a few things. And I just kind of want to run down who the Holy Spirit is and what, that was, what was promised. The Holy Spirit's an, ad, an advocate who will help us, or help them, help us as well. Spirit of truth, he will be in us, he'll be with us. He's not visible to the world. He's sent by the Father. He will teach and remind us of everything that Jesus taught. He will convict the world of sin. He will guide us. He only speaks the words he hears from Christ, and he will glorify Christ. Luke 12, 12 tells us that the Holy Spirit will teach you at the time what you should say. So the Holy Spirit's going to be there to guide and give us the words when we're talking to people as we need them. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 tells us that when we believe, we are marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. The Holy Spirit brings comfort to us as we, it's a seal with us that we belong to God. It tells us that we belong to God. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Here Paul is instructing his readers about living as children of the light. He says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. I love here how he juxtaposes drunkenness with the Spirit's indwelling. Right? Reminds me of Peter coming up in Acts 2. He says, we're not, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. We're not drunk as you suppose. Right? 
They came you know, later on at happy hour. Maybe he could have understood their confusion. But at 9 o'clock in the morning, he didn't understand it. But it got me thinking here. How does alcohol impair us? Right? It clouds our thinking, our emotions, our judgment. It changes our perception, the things, how we see, how we hear, how we touch. It impacts our speech. It impacts the things that we actually say. We're a little more loose-lipped if we're drunk. It impacts our coordination physically. Think about that. If the Holy Spirit impacted us in the same way, if we allowed ourselves to be filled with the Spirit, how dynamic would that be? The clarity in the way that which we see the world, right? The, the ability to discern, to understand people, to understand our relationships. How might our speech be impacted? How much more life-giving and positive would it be? It would be this all-encompassing power of the Spirit if we allow Him to indwell us and to be filled. The word there for be filled with the Spirit is be being filled. It's an ongoing filling. It's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. So we continue on. In Acts 2, we see what, what they were waiting for. And that's the Pentecost Sunday. It seems... Um, that was a unique and dramatic event. The mighty rushing wind, the building shook. Tongues of fire came down on them. They all spoke in tongues. People from all over the world were in Jerusalem. They could understand them because they were, you know, they were speaking the gospel in these tongues. And they're coming out of these, this ragtag bunch of uneducated guys. We don't see another event like that in scriptures. We see some dramatic events in Acts, but nothing quite like that. It doesn't mean it can't happen, but I don't think the scripture is asking us to chase an experience like that. A lot of people have said it's better to think of the Holy Spirit indwelling us as a condition rather than an experience. To be baptized means to be immersed or covered over by. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For we, in one spirit, we are all baptized into the body. Like Ephesians 1 said, we have that seal on us. We have the Holy Spirit in us once we believe. So as we believe, we, are, we have that spirit with us. And we see that over time that our lives are transformed, and we can tell that by the fruit of the spirit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, you know them. This is the change in our character over time, and that's the impact of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what we're looking for, to see if we're filled. So what are some keys, and how can we be filled? It comes from God, but how, it says, to this, that verse in uh, first Ephesians 1 says, that we should be filled with the Spirit. I don't think it's rocket science. I think if we worship God, recognize Him as our King, our God and our King, you know, something wells up in you when you do that, sincerely. When He becomes a reality in your life more and more, the more time you spend with Him. Read His Word, right? Understand His teachings. Pray without ceasing and do that daily. Do it all daily. This is about building a relationship with the living God. If you want to get to know God, you need to spend time with him just like anybody else. So if you want the spirit to indwell you, spend time in, in these things with prayer and God's word and in praise and worship. And strive to live a pure life. Strive to avoid sin. Live with sincerity. If you want to be filled with the spirit, devote yourself and your time to God. This is the pattern that the disciples, the apostles sent for us. It was also the case with Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story. They were devoted to God, and God could use them. 
We can't overlook the importance of the Spirit's power and the mission that we have been called to. We cannot do this job without it, without the Spirit's presence. How does the Spirit enable us to do this? He guides us. He reminds us of Christ's teachings. He brings us to repentance, transforms us, gives us clarity of mind, words to speak. He gives us confidence. He gives us boldness, courage, and conviction. Right? Those are the things that the Spirit does for us. And that's how he can empower us to do his mission. So if we want to be obedient to the, to the assignment that God give us, gives us, we have to recognize that God has chosen us, and we have to recognize that we're dependent on the Holy Spirit's power to do what he's asking us to do. The next question is, what's the assignment? So let's move on to verses 6 through 8, if you can. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, after everything he had taught the disciples and shown them, they still had the wrong idea. I love these kind of verses because they, they really show the disciples were people like you and me. They were still waiting for an earthly kingdom. That's what that first question shows. They were looking for him to come and restore Israel. But that wasn't it. They were slow on the uptake. They're normal guys just like us. <laughs> Jesus doesn't give them all the information. He doesn't give them every detail. But he does give them an assignment in here. What is it? He says here, The Spirit will give you power to be my witnesses to the world. You notice this isn't a commandment, right? You will be my witnesses. The natural outflow of the Spirit-filled life is that you will witness to God. This, this tells us that the Spirit empowers our work. That's the first thing. But it's also a great way to gauge our spiritual walk. Ask yourself daily, am I being a good witness to the gospel? You know, I talked a lot about assignment, and I did that on purpose because um, I was reading a book recently. Uh, it's a charismatic guy named Mario Murillo, and he makes a distinction between our assignment and God's purpose. But he says, he, as an example, he says, imagine a new recruit to the Marine Corps, you know, and this Jill sergeant comes to him and says, hey, why did you sign up for the, for the Corps? And he says, to find my purpose. He's, <laughs> He said, the guy would be screamed at, and he'd be told this, you have no purpose. Only the core has a purpose. You have an assignment. Likewise, he says that God has a purpose and that we have an assignment. Riddle says that God, Christ came to reconcile man to God. He came to overcome evil. We come to tell God about what Christ has done. That's our assignment. And I know these are just words, but here's the point. We are here to serve God's purposes. They're bigger than ours. Often in our culture, there's such an emphasis on individualism, right? On our personal meaning. They can take away from that. While God most certainly embraces us as individuals, he does. He loves us and he knows us and he uses us with our gifts and abilities and talents. He also at the same time tasks all of his followers with the same assignment. We do have choices to make in this life, right? But no matter what we do, we are all called to be witnesses of his redemptive plan to the world around us. 
I think this is a great equalizer. <laughs> it has a way of keeping our egos in check, but it also keeps us unified. This is what we're here to do together. This is why we gather every week. This is what we're doing together. This is the purpose. This is the, the plan, and that's our assignment in it. But what exactly does he mean by witness? witnesses? You'll be my witnesses. If you go back to the Luke 24 account of the same past, the same time period, he says this, that we are called to be witnesses to everything that he accomplished and taught. All of the things that had been prophesied about him, to tell that he had been the Messiah, that he had suffered, that he died and rose again, and that he offers repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's a message of grace. The Spirit will remind us of these truths and guide us as we share them. No matter what you decide to do, what your job is, what your family looks like, where you live, all of those things, this purpose, this sorry, assignment stays the same. How do I do this? Who you witness to, where you do it, where all those things will be different for each person. But it's all towards the same assignment. It's the same assignment towards the same purpose. And here's the thing, you were redeemed for this. Right? We have to keep this purpose so central to our identity. It's the primary goal that God has given us. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says we are, that we are not our own, that we were bought at a price. In Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Those are amazing, inspiring passages from Paul. Remind me of Esther. You know, the beautiful Queen Esther, she was placed in a position of influence. But she risks her, her life to go and speak for her people before she goes unsummoned before the king. He could have had her killed. Right? Her uncle Mordecai says these words, And who knows whether you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. What he's telling her is, is maybe this is what you were born to do. This is the time. This is what God has, God has planned for you. This is the way, this is the assignment he's given you or the way that assignment's going to unfold. Her response to him is, if I perish, I perish. Echoing the words of Paul, right? And you guys, all of us, were born for such a time as this. Are you ready to accept your assignment as his witnesses right here where you are? Maybe you won't have to risk your life before a king. Maybe you won't be beaten or shipwrecked or any of those things. But maybe you'll have to make a tough decision at work, you know, because your conscience won't let you go along with the crowd. Maybe you'll have to share gospel with a neighbor, with a friend, or maybe even harder, an unbelieving family member. No matter what calls us, God calls us to, we are called to be his witnesses, to, and to witness to all he has done. This is the primary vocation of your life. We need to keep it in focus. And as we keep it in focus, it brings everything else into perspective and it sets the priorities for us. I want to finish, conclude by reading uh, the last portion of this scripture here, verses 9 through 11. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up in the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand there looking into the sky? The same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. See, the angels come, and the men who come are angels. 
They come to nudge them along and to encourage them. Why are you standing there looking into the sky? Right? He's trying to push them. Let's go. And he says this, that same Jesus who went there is coming back. What a comfort to know that he's coming back. But if we continue our mission, the assignment that he gives us, we have to do that until he returns. The, the, Jesus had just given us, given his apostles a mission, and now the angels are telling him to get at it. There's an urgency to this. Christ will return. There is a deadline. We have a message of hope to give the world. That's in the world around us. That's the mission. That's the assignment that you've been given. To share what you know about Christ with everybody you can. I think if the church is ever irrelevant, it's because we've lost sight of this assignment. Other things have clouded our perspective. Personally, as individuals within the church, we've let other things kind of crowd out that purpose, that direction, that assignment. And collectively as churches, sometimes we get focused on the wrong thing. If we keep our focus on being witnesses to God's redeeming grace, then we'll always be relevant to the world around us. At the beginning of the message, I mentioned the various people in the nativity scene, that they were part of the story and that we can be too. No matter what your personality is, if you're a planner or you're not, no matter what the circumstances of your life are, you know, the cost it might be to you, we are all called to be witnesses, Christ witnesses to the world. This is the main purpose of our life. Everything else comes after it. Know that you were chosen for this and know that God has not left you alone to do this work. He's going to empower you to do it. Uh, I want to read a quote here from John Wesley as I finish. He was John Wesley, is an English preacher, um, founder of what would become the Methodist Church, the Methodist Movement. And on his deathbed, he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was a member of parliament who was key in uh, the abolition of slavery in England and in its, in all, in its uh, um, all over the world. And this is what John Wesley says to William Wilberforce about his fight for the abolition of slavery. He says this, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might. The Wilberforce was being a witness in the political realm that he was a part of. And he couldn't do it in his own might. Wesley's encouraging, go on in God's strength and God's power. God is calling you to obedience, to be part of his story. Are you ready to take up that assignment? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the amazing privilege that it is to belong to you, to be part of your mission. God, I just pray that you would be with us, give us clarity of mind and focus, Lord, in our lives day, day to day. As we come to the end of, a new, of one year and the beginning of a new one, God, I just pray that that would be our focus as individuals and as a church. Amen.